ticket holder at Bears games. <laughs> Marshall, you're a good man. <laughs> uh, a week or so ago when I was preparing a few sentences of what I might say about Marshall, the phone rang. And it was Marshall. And I told him what my problem was. What am I going to say about you? And he says, say anything you want, just don't cuss. <laughs> so I promise you, I won't cuss. Swear maybe, but I won't cuss. Uh, Marshall was a graduate of Drake, a JD from Northwestern University, successful attorney, with a senior partner with the firm of Deutsch, Levy, and Engel. Uh, Marshall has done everything for the round table. Member for 25 years, president 71-72, newsletter editor, and then he started his career at the round table. Uh, he is available to anybody and anything that has to do with the round table. They uh, help the speakers, help the president get speakers, put up a battlefield marker to Marcellus Jones out in Wheaton, or a, a grave marker, I should say. Uh, finding Longstreet's route to the second day at Gettysburg. Anything at all. He is now getting to be a Civil War book dealer. He is a, writing a book for Harold Howard's uh, Virginia Regimental Series. A busy, busy man. As a matter of fact, I don't know how he manages to do everything he does with his law practice and the round table. Maybe if Mr. Deutsch or Mr. Levy or Mr. Engel were here, they could explain it. <laughs> I can't. He uh, is a speaker in much demand at round tables. Uh, everything else. And his specialty has been Gettysburg and Civil War Cavalry. And that is a matter of some uh, concern to the, some of us who are interested in the Western campaigns. And uh, I'm glad to say I think I see the first glimmerings of seeing light because Marshall Krolik is going to speak to us on Grant's General Order Number 11. Marshal. Thank you, Charlie. Before I begin my topic, the remarks pertaining to my topic, I would like to make one announcement that I think is obvious to those of us who are members of the Chicago Roundtable and regularly attend its meetings. We are here today discussing a great career of probably the second greatest general to fight for the North during the Civil War. Maybe in a future year we will devote at least a week, and it would take that long, to discuss the career of the greatest general, Stephen Augustus Hurlbut. <laughs> I say that, and again, those of us who are members of the Chicago Roundtable know with a lot of sadness, because during this past week, we lost one of our most beloved members, past president, 
and the defender of the career of Stephen Augustus Hurlbut at all times, Dr. Gerhard Clausius. I think there is not a person alive who knew him who didn't love him. And by coincidence, and at this, at, as long as you have to go through a loss like this by our good fortune, the Belvedere High School Civil War Roundtable is in the process of erecting a monument to General Hurlbut out in Belvedere, his hometown, and of course that was where Dr. Clausius lived also. And they are several hundreds of dollars short in this project. And therefore, anybody who would like to, I would be happy to accept, and Frank Crawford, who is also here from Belvedere, would be happy to accept checks today, or if you want to mail them to us, whatever amount you feel appropriate, to make payable to the Belvedere High School Civil War Roundtable, and these checks will be utilized to complete that project and add a separate plaque to the monument which will say that it was partially erected in memory of Dr. Gerhard Clausius. So I hope all of you will uh, see either Frank or I later and, uh, and be generous. Quote, the Jews as a class violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department and also department orders are hereby expelled from the department within 24 hours from the receipt of this order. Post commanders will see that all of this class of people be furnished passes and required to leave, and anyone returning after such notification will be arrested and held in confinement until an opportunity occurs of sending them out as prisoners unless furnished with permits from headquarters. No passes will be given these people to visit headquarters for the purpose of making personal application for permits. If you were to read that in a book about the Spanish Inquisition, you probably wouldn't be surprised. If you were to read it about Central Europe in the 1840s, you would not be surprised. Nor would you be surprised to read it in a book about Russia of the 1890s, or especially Germany of the 1930s. But that order was not issued in any of those places. The date line on it is Headquarters, 13th Army Corps, Department of the Tennessee, Holly Springs, December 17, 1862. It is signed by order of Major General U.S. Grant by John A. Rawlins, Assistant Adjutant General. Once issued, all commercial travelers, traders, peddlers, if you will, who were Jews, were required to immediately leave. But that wasn't all it applied to. In every city within the department covered by this order, such as Paducah, Kentucky, Louisville, wherever the Union Army controlled under Grant's command, in every Jewish home, there was a knock on the door. When he answered, there was an officer standing there telling him to leave within 24 hours. If the Jew said, where shall I go? The officer probably answered, that's your problem, not mine. In Paducah, Kentucky alone, 30 families within 24 hours were forced to pack whatever they could carry with them into their wagons, and off they went. 
North, probably. Some of these people were, had been veterans of the Union Army, but it didn't matter. Fortunately, in Paducah, there were three gentlemen who decided not to take this lying down. The principal member of this group was a man by the name of Caesar Caskell. He was a Jew and a very prominent citizen of Paducah, a much honored citizen of Paducah. He, he and his brother and a man by the name of Wolf immediately telegrammed to Washington protesting against this order. They received no answer. Mr. Caskell decided again he was not going to take it lying down. And so within a few moments, or a few days I mean, he took to the cars as they called them of course in those days and he left to go to Washington. En route, he visited Cincinnati and there conferred with Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, probably the most influential rabbi of the 1860s in America. And he obtained a letter of introduction from Rabbi Wise to an Ohio congressman by the name of Gurley. When he arrived, when the delegation arrived in Washington, they went to see Congressman Gurley, who went with them and escorted them to the White House to see the president. There at the White House, Mr. Caskell told Mr. Lincoln about the order, of which Lincoln knew absolutely nothing. He was shocked and he did not believe it until Mr. Caskell produced a copy. Immediately, Mr. Lincoln picked up his pen and wrote a note to General Halleck directing that the order be canceled. Mr. Caskell and his brother and friend and Congressman Gurley immediately went to General Halleck and presented both the order, of which also Halleck knew nothing, and the President's note. And Halleck, on the orders of the President, was of course forced to do something about it. But I think you will find that what he did and the language he used is somewhat indicative. Keep in mind that General Halleck is a close friend of General Grant's. The order is issued to General Grant on January 4th, 1863, approximately uh, two weeks after Grant's original order, and it says, a paper purporting to be General Order Number 11, issued by you December 17th, has been presented here. By its terms, it expels all Jews from your department. If such an order has been issued, it will be immediately revoked. Three days later, on January 7, 1863, with receipt of General Halleck's order, General Grant's headquarters issued an order revoking the prior order with the following language. That they were revoking it, quote, by direction of the General-in-Chief of the Army at Washington, close quote. In other words, not by their own decision. General Halleck was not going to leave it sit like that. He felt he owed his friend a better explanation for the revocation. And again, I think you will find the wording somewhat interesting. This is a letter written by Halleck to Grant on January 21st, another two weeks later. General, it may be proper to give you some explanation of the revocation of your order, ex order expelling all Jews from your department. The President has no objection to your expelling traitors and Jew peddlers, which I suppose was the object of your order. 
but, that, but as it in terms prescribed an entire religious class, some of whom are fighting in our ranks, the president deemed it necessary to revoke it. I seriously question those words as being the words of the president. I think more likely they are the words of General Halleck. And so the Jews were free to return to their homes. Some did, some never did. Those that did, who had homes or businesses, returned to find that during their absence, some of their neighbors had decided to take possession of the homes or take possession of any property they had not been able to carry away with them. There are several recorded instances of businessmen who were literally ruined because their inventory and stores had been looted and ransacked and they had nothing left. Immediately after the rescission of the order, a hue and cry was raised throughout the country against General Grant, demanding censure or even removal. Rabbis, influential from around the country, and lay Jewish leadership traveled to Washington, retracing Mr. Caskell's steps, this time to thank the president for revocation and to seek Grant's immediate removal from the army. Newspapers also, both Jewish and the regular civilian dailies, and even influential Gentiles, bombarded Washington with demands for Grant's censure or removal. On the other side, however, there were those who didn't care. For example, Attorney General Bates received a petition from the B'nai B'rith Lodge in St. Louis, which the request that he forwarded to the president. He did, with a letter saying, I've been requested to forward this, and I do, but I really have no interest in the matter. And then there was Congressman Washburn. I think we charitably can best describe him as Grant's patron, possibly his apologist. Certainly in this instance, on January 6, 1863, two days after Halleck's order of revocation, Washburn writes to the president that Grant's or general order number 11 was, quote, the wisest order yet made, close quote. On January 8th, two days later, he writes to Grant, Halleck has told me that your order was too broad. If it had just referred to peddlers, okay. But as it referred to residents, it created a, quote, hardship, close quote, I guess. Also, general order number 11 reached the halls of Congress. And here it became a political football, as you might guess. There were resolutions introduced by Democrats, needless to say, in both houses calling for the censure of General Grant. The Democrats supported it only as a means to embarrass the administration. Republicans defended it by saying that it would not be fair to censure Grant because, as was mentioned by Wiley, Grant was the only general that was winning. Again, Congressman Washburn raised his voice, this time on the floor of Congress at the debate on the proposal, and he argued vigorously that no censure of General Grant should be made without a hearing. He seems to have forgotten that Grant gave no hearing to the Jews. In any event, in both houses there were motions to table. The one in the House passed by a vote of 56 to 53, in the Senate by 30 to 7. The 
proponent of the proposal in the Senate, Representative, or Senator Powell of Kentucky, was later to admit that the only reason he introduced the proposal was that he hoped that it would cause a precedent to be set about the protection of civilian rights in the war zone, obviously thinking of his constituents in Kentucky. And so the matter died in Congress. Media response was mixed at this time, discussing the proposals in Congress, again, mostly on party lines. However, one newspaper, a strong administration supporter, the New York Times, utilized the following language, quote, it is a humiliating reflection that after the progress of liberal ideas, even in the most despotic countries, has restored the Jews to civil and social rights as members of a common humanity, it remained for the freest government on earth to witness a momentary revival of the spirit of the medieval ages. We rely on the general principles of Republican right and justice for the utter reprobation of Grant's order. Men cannot be condemned and punished as a class without gross violence to our free institutions. What of the Jewish community itself? For the most part, they reacted strongly with letters and other means to the failure of the government to at least censure Grant. But to, the credit, to their credit, it appears from the best experts and communications available that in no way did the issuance of General Order Number 11 diminish the support of the war effort and the administration from those who had supported them prior to the issuance of the order. And what of Grant himself? What did he say? For the remainder of the war, absolutely nothing. There was no apology ever made, nor was there an explanation ever given until several years after the war, as we shall see. And so, maybe that was best because the issue faded away and by the spring of 1863 it was forgotten except probably by those who had lost their homes and the war went on 1868 the Republicans nominate General Grant for president the Democrats under their candidate Horace Greeley immediately raised the issue of General Order number 11 accusing Grant of anti-Semitism, of violation of civilian rights, etc., etc. In fact, the campaign of 1868 was to become the first campaign for president where a controversy involving a religious minority became a major issue. This put those Jewish citizens of prominence who supported the Republican Party to great stress. But for the most part, and there are many quotes in newspaper letters from them, they urged party loyalty as the main watchword of the time and said, while we cannot obviously support what Grant did, we must be loyal to our party. The Jewish press, too, must be credited for their attitude because almost unanimously they argued vigorously against a so-called, quote, Jewish vote, close quote, and urged each of their readers to vote on the basis of his own independence and his conscience. Again, all of the Jewish community during the early stages of the campaign looked to Grant for a statement, an explanation, something. And again, for quite a while, there was silence. But his friends were not silent. Adam Badeau, John Rawlins, 
both wrote lengthy letters to newspapers denying that Grant had any prejudice at all. However, and there the matter might have died, and Grant would have won the election. However, as always happens, one guy decided to stick his nose into it. Unfortunately, we don't know who he was. But whoever he was, he claimed to be a staff officer of one of Grant's corps commanders. And he wrote an anonymous letter to the Chicago Evening Journal. In this letter, he claimed that Grant had not authored General Order Number 11, that someone else had issued it in his name, but that Grant had kept silent all these years to protect that person from criticism and censure. This raised the issue anew, and now the debate began in earnest. Only this time the question was, who wrote General Order Number 11? Certainly the staunch Republicans jumped on the bandwagon saying, oh, he didn't write it. To examine the question of who was responsible, we have to go back, go back to the summer and fall of 1862 in Mississippi, Kentucky, and Tennessee. There we find a certain product called cotton. The South had plenty of it, what they didn't have were guns, ammunition, medical supplies, and the money to buy those items. The North had the money, but they didn't have cotton. And the Northern woolen mills in New England needed it. The English woolen mills needed it. The French mills needed it. Thus, contrary to the popular belief, the United States government during the period of 1862 not only permitted the trading of cotton, but encouraged it, but imposed certain restrictions on it. Number one, you had to apply for a permit, and if you didn't get a permit, you couldn't trade in cotton. Number two, you could not pay for the cotton in materiel or gold or silver, but only in U.S. Treasury notes, which in the Confederacy were useless. So therefore, the government felt by this policy that trading would be controlled. Wrong. <laughs> the best state of description for the state of affairs that resulted is chaos. Immediately, bribery for permits became the rule of the day. Speculation with gold and silver was rampant. As the noted Jewish historian Rabbi Bertram Korn said, in the Western theater there grew up a second front, an economic war of greed, exploitation, and treachery. A very apt description. Among those dealing in cotton illegally were civilians of all scope and nature, soldiers of all scope and nature. There has even been some who have uttered the dastardly accusation that General Hurlbut was the head of the cotton ring. <laughs> We all know that to be a base falsehood. <laughs> the fact that he was the commandant in Memphis, where one congressman estimated 20 to 30 million dollars worth of cotton passed through in a six-month period, has nothing to reflect on his career. And another large group of illegal cotton traders were the treasury agents sent out by the government to oversee the cotton trade. And even Admiral Porter 
got into the act when he accused several of his gunboat crews of transporting cotton up and down the Mississippi as they made their patrols. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, in denying the request for permit sent to him by a congressman from Illinois, said that the Army is too busy trading cotton to fight. <laughs> now, there is no question, and nobody will deny, that several of these illegal cotton traders were Jews. Were they the majority of them? Without question, they were not. Probably the army officers were the majority. But certainly there were a lot of Jews down there because when the Jewish immigrants had come to this country in the late 1840s, many of them had adopted the time-honored Jewish profession of peddler. And of course today when you travel through the South, you will see many small towns where the department store is Goldberg's or Rosenberg's or some name of that type and of course Goldwater's in Phoenix. And that is a product of the itinerant Jewish peddler who found a town he liked and where the people liked him and settled down to open a general store. And of course, when the war broke out, many of these Jewish peddlers just transferred their occupation and became settlers. And so the army had a large number of Jews around it. Not only that, but they were very easy to spot by their distinctive dress and their distinctive accents. Now, there were two officers down in that area who did not agree with the government's attitude toward cotton trading, and that was Ulysses S. Grant and William T. Sherman. Both of them sent many, many communications to the government saying that all cotton trading should be banned and that all cotton traders expelled. And for almost the entire year of 1862, both of them spent as much time trying to eliminate the cotton trade as they did trying to eliminate the Confederates. Thus, we find by December of 1862, a commanding general, Ulysses S. Grant, who has and is under tremendous pressure from within himself because of his hatred of the cotton trade and those who practice it, and from without, from the government, trying to get him to clean up the mess that the government itself had created. Now back to the question of who wrote General Order Number 11. The staff officer that wrote that letter claimed that it was written, that the actual order was written by a Colonel John DeBose, who at that time was in command at Holly Springs. DeBose at that, in 1868 was on duty at a fort in New Mexico. He was advised of this accusation and immediately forwarded correspondence back to the East, vigorously denying that he had authored General Order Number 11, but admitting that he himself had issued an order, which is of some interest, a few days before General Order Number 11. And that order said, and it was issued December 8th from his headquarters in Holly Springs, all cotton speculators, Jews, and other vagrants that's interesting. <laughs> Having no honest means to support except trading upon the misery of the country, and in general all other persons from the north not connected with the army whatever, and having no permission from the commanding general to remain in town, will leave in 24 hours or will be put to duty in the entrenchments. He wasn't fooling around. Upon hearing of this order, General Grant immediately revoked it and removed DuBose from command. Moreover, 
DuBose claimed in his letters in 1868 that he had never been on Grant's staff and therefore had never had the authority to sign Grant or Rollins' name to any order of any kind. Certainly a persuasive argument, and therefore we can dispose of DuBose as a potential author of General Order Number 11. However, five more sources rose to the front with letters to the newspapers. Three of these, including the general's father, Jesse Grant, an eminent personage. <laughs> Those of you who have read of the general know of the character of his father. And also a very prominent Jewish Republican claimed to have been present on December 17, 1862 at Grant's headquarters and that on that date Grant had received explicit orders from Washington, from the War Department, to expel the Jews from his department. A fourth person, John Rawlins himself, claimed that Halleck had referred to Grant large volumes of complaints against Jew traders and peddlers and had told Grant to take action. The fifth person said that it was general knowledge within the army that the orders came from Washington to expel the Jews. Those who did not agree with this position raised several points in opposition. Number one, that no such orders from Washington or no such large volume of complaints of Halleck, and in fact there was only one, were ever found in the records or in the official records or anywhere else. Number two, John Rawlins signed General Order Number 11. And who is John Rawlins going to sign an order for except U.S. Grant? Number three, on December 17th, the same day as he issued the order, Grant wrote a letter to Mr. C.P. Walcott, a dignitary in the War Department, in which he said as follows, I have long believed that in spite of all the vigilance that can be infused into post commanders, the specie regulations of the Treasury Department have been violated, and that mostly by Jews and other unprincipled traitors. So well satisfied have I been of this that I instructed the commanding order officer at Columbus to refuse all permits to Jews to come south, and I have frequently had them expelled from the department but back they come with their carpet sacks in spite of all that can be done to prevent it. I would put forth to you, as those people who argued at that time, that this letter sounds greatly like an explanation of General Order Number 11. And lastly, General Order Number 11 was not the first incidence of General Grant and the Jews. Rather, there were three prior orders, July 26th, November 9th and November 10th, 1862. For sake of brevity, I will just read you the last two because they are very short. November 9th, to Major General Hurlbut, we know him, refuse all permits to come south of Jackson for the present. The Israelites especially should be kept out. Next day, November 10th, to General Webster at Jackson, Tennessee, give orders to all the conductors on the road that no Jews are to be permitted to travel on the railroad southward from any point. They may go north and be encouraged in it, but they are such an intolerable nuisance that this department must be purged of them. Thus, the conclusion is absolute and cannot be denied that the author of General Order Number 11 
was Ulysses S. Grant and no one else, and that the order was not an accident or an impulse, but was a deliberate and premeditated action. But once you acknowledge that, you have to look at what Grant finally said himself. And finally he did. In response to the furor and the debate that raged in his presidential campaign, on September 14, 1868, he wrote a letter to Congressman Morris of Illinois. And I think that some of the language here will be very interesting to you. At the time of its publication, I was incensed by a reprimand received from Washington for permitting acts which Jews within my lines were engaged in. There were many other persons within my lines equally bad with the worst of them. The order was issued and sent without any reflection and without thinking of the Jews as a sect or race to themselves, but since simply as persons who had successfully violated orders which greatly inured to the help of the rebels. I have no prejudice against sect or race but want each individual to be judged by his own merit. Order number 11 does not sustain that statement. I admit, but then I do not sustain that order. It never would have been issued if it had not been telegraphed the moment it was penned and without reflection. I cannot agree with that last line, but we must forgive him. The question remains, why? To answer that, we go back to those pressures we mentioned before. Here is a man who was under pressure from the government to stop the cotton trading, pressure from himself because he hated it. For months he had been seeking a way to stop that trading. General Order Number 11 was a logical progression from prior orders which had stopped Jews from going south. They were still coming, so why not throw them out? And I also propose that the idea for General Order Number 11 came from Colonel DuBose's order of December 8th, which Grant had revoked. I think we can assume that as the more he thought about it, the more he realized that maybe DuBose had the right answer. Also, if we're going to ask why, we have to look at William Tecumseh Sherman. Grant's close friend, confidant, and certainly during this period, constant companion. From Sherman's writings as far back as 1858, there is no question that Sherman was anti-Semitic. I will quote you from a letter written in 1858 from Sherman. Quote, individuals may prosper in a failing community such as San Francisco, but they must be Jews without pity, soul, heart, or bowels of compassion. Strong words. There are other, there are other similar statements from Sherman written during the war, but again, without time, we will not quote them. But I would certainly cite you to them as evidence of the fact that Sherman was anti-Semitic. Certainly his friendship with Grant and their mutual hate, hatred of the trading and the traitors must have influenced Grant's attitude at this time. However, 
When we ask ourselves, was Grant anti-Semitic? I think the answer is a resounding no. It is clear from all of his writings, from all of his correspondence, from anything we know about the man, that he never made a conscious decision to dislike Jews. In fact, he enjoyed pleasant relationships built on mutual respect with many Jews. He appointed or tried to appoint many to office. Under his administration, the State Department protested as it had never done before and has rarely done since. Anti-Semitic persecutions in Russia and Romania and in fact, in a protest of this action in Romania, he appointed a Jewish council to Romania from the United States. No, Ulysses S. Grant was not an anti-Semite. What then caused the order? Grant, like so many others, was only guilty of unconscious prejudice and stereotype image. These feelings burst forth from him in a time of great stress and frustration over inability to control the cotton trade. Further, the furor over General Order Number 11 caused him to recognize that he had experienced these feelings and these unconscious prejudices. And his simple direct nature resulted in a sense of shame and embarrassment. And it is to those feelings that I ascribe his silence. I think that Grant never spoke until six years later because he was ashamed of what he had done. After the election and the landslide election of U.S. Grant in 1868, the story of General Order Number 11 has faded away. And it should not be revised at any time as a blot on the career of Ulysses S. Grant. But it should be remembered as an understanding of how it happened, that it happened to an otherwise good man, and maybe that's probably the best lesson of it at all. Thank you very much. As usual, <laughs> very, very good speech. Thank you, Marshall. Any questions? Okay, now Bill's gone. No, sure. Oh, my goodness. Bill Sullivan. Hello, Billy. <laughs> Marshall, you've done an excellent job explaining General Order 11 and why Grant uh, did it. Can you also explain, uh, perhaps, William, I cannot explain it, but I refer you to one Merlin Sumner <laughs> as an expert on not only Grant but on his relationships with Catholic priests. <laughs> There's another one. Yes, sir. Um, was it really that different than the order directed to Japanese in World War II? Well, I, I, would, I would say the order directed at the Japanese in World War II was even worse and only proved that we still hadn't learned. Yeah. Yes, yes ma'am.
there, she asked if there was any anti-Semitism exhibited in the Confederacy. There was anti-Semitism across the country. Uh, not a lot of it. It was not as prevalent as it would later become. Um, it wasn't as prevalent in the Confederacy because you had much fewer, fewer Jews in the South than you did in the North. Uh, certainly there were individual incidents in the Confederacy, but I believe that the anti-Semitism in the North was much worse than in the South. For what reason, I personally can't explain, but there are certainly much more recorded incidents of it than there are in the, in the uh, North, uh, much less in the South. Yes, yeah, sir. Was very closely parallel to Sherman's, I think it does. I think, but I think it's always an element of, of Sherman's character. Uh, I'm not being facetious when I say that I don't. I've always felt that William Sherman was not playing with all of his oars in the water. <laughs> I think he. I think he was an irrational individual as evidenced by his obvious uh, mental breakdown in 61. Uh, and, and I think that uh, he had a lot of opinions that certainly would be considered somewhat radical. Um, his attitude toward newspaper correspondence, and as I say, he was an anti-Semite, and there were other things. I always wondered if, why someone didn't go up to Sherman and say, I hate redheads, just to see what he would have done. <laughs> Any other questions? One right here. Oh. Did this order affect any of the soldiers or officers in the Army? No, it did not. And as a matter of fact, the whole thing within the district as to the Army became a joke because all of the sutlers appeared at headquarters and they were told it didn't apply to them. In fact, I am in possession of a typescript of a diary of a sutler by the name of Henry Frank who was attached to a Missouri battery. And he writes many years after the war, and of course you have to look at it with a little grain of salt, but he claims that he went to Grant himself, that he knew Grant from Grant's days in St. Louis. And that he went to Grant and said, does this apply to me? And Grant said, of course not, uh, Frank, you can stay here. And, and no, no army officers were, were returned home. No sutlers that I know of were sent away, but the peddlers and the citizens, the civilians were. There was uh, at least one incident that I know for sure, and there might have been more, of officers who resigned. There was an officer in an Ohio regiment who immediately resigned in protest over the order, a Jewish officer. Yeah. I don't think so. I, he probably agreed with Grant. Uh, you know, it, stereotype uh, was a common thing as it is today. Um, the Jews were there, they were visible, the cotton trading was going on. I don't recall, and Merle might know, but I don't recall ever seeing anything written by Rawlins about it, uh, about his own personal feelings. He did, as I mentioned, write about Grant's feelings. But I would not ascribe anything to Rawlins. He, first of all, he had to do what he was told. But, uh, and I don't, I've never believed that Rawlins exerted as much influence over Grant's daily operations as a lot of people think. I think Rawlins might have had some personal uh, control, but over Grant's operations within his job, I don't think Rawlins had any control at all. Yes, sir. Mr. Sanderman. Marcus Siegel. That's correct. That's correct. 
Or Hebrew. are correct, Mar, but I don't think that the analogy is as serious as, you, as you, you've stated it. The Jews themselves of the 19th century did not refer to themselves as Jews. They called themselves Hebrews or Israelites. Jew was, as Marvin indicated, a term of reproach, but it was the common term that was used by all Gentiles. And certainly not all Gentiles were anti-Semitic or attempting to insult anyone. But it was rare when a Gentile would say Hebrew or Israelite. There was, uh, to illustrate that, and uh, some of you may know, the only all-Jewish unit to fight in the Civil War was Company C of the 82nd Illinois Infantry, which was raised here in Chicago. Uh, 96 Jews from the community of Chicago. And when they were organized at a mass meeting here in Chicago in uh, uh, August of 62, the resolution that the meeting passed said in, in several places, Israelite, Hebrew, never used the term Jew. And, uh, but, I, but all Gentiles did. So I, and I don't think they were all trying to be insulting. It was just the common vernacular. By the way, that's an excellent book Marv mentioned, uh, Colonel Marcus Siegel who was a colonel of Ohio regiment, killed out uh, west of the Mississippi River. Uh, and I highly recommend it. It's good. Yes, sir. First of all, I want to make one correction. The candidate opposed to Grand Seymour, Seventy-two. Seventy-two, right. I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point I'm trying to make. I would look at it as an unfortunate incident in a great career, and one I think he deeply regretted. I, I would not ascribe anything worse than that to him. Uh, other writers have, but I would disagree with them. One more question. How much what? Was cotton trading? It was a tremendous problem because with the gold and silver, the, the South was buying guns. They couldn't make the guns. Uh, they couldn't make uh, all of the other things. They had no industry to speak of. And uh, the, the gold and silver was coming south in a river. And uh, then it would flow out to England or to the, the, the Caribbean and to be used to buy Enfields and, and Whitworths and, and, what, and medicines and what have you. It was a tremendous problem. As equally as, as serious a problem to Grant and his forces as the Confederate armies. Again, I thank you all. Great speech. Thank you, Marshall.